All right, guys, continuing the long queue of amazing guests, I have Alice Dreger with us today. Let me tell you about her background before I say hello to Alice. Uh, until recently, you were the professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. By the way, I was there in 2013 at the Kellogg School. You've mm -hmm. authored several books, including, let me read these, people should definitely check them out, Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, Intersex and in the Age of Ethics, One of Us, Conjoint Twins and the Future of Normal, and the book that we'll be discussing today, Galileo's Middle Finger. How are you doing, Alice? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so good to, to have you. So I guess I thought I would start with, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a, it was a small article, maybe one would consider it a letter, written in Science in 2005, uh, I think by some folks in Michigan. I know you're in Michigan right now. And uh, it was titled Forbidden Knowledge. Uh, which, oh, right. Do, are you familiar with that paper? I'd forgotten about it, but yes. So I wanted to read you a, a quote, two quotes from it, which is going to be a nice segue to sort of what we're going to talk about. So the two quotes are, there's a growing concern about the politicization and social control of science, constraining the conduct, funding, publication, and public use of scientific research. And there are formal and informal constraints that have a palpable effect on what, on what science is studied, how studies are performed, how data are interpreted, and how results are disseminated. That's pretty much the key takeaway from what you do, right? In many ways, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's more problems that have arisen lately, which includes attacks from progressive leftists, but also more openly brazen attacks from political conservatives. But yes, I think that that kind of sums up the sorts of problems that we're facing today with regard to scientific research and the pressures being put on it from all sorts of different directions. And now, I don't know if you saw what just happened in the U.S., the NSF now when you get a grant from the NSF, you have to agree that you are doing work in the national interest and only certain things count as being in the national interest. This has gotten remarkably little press, but it's kind of wow. creepy. So yeah. if you were studying now, this might not fit under the, the, the rubric of the National Science Foundation, but if you were studying something to do with the Sanskrit language or Shakespearean analysis of certain texts, if someone deems that as not within the national interest, that research is is not, not fundable. That's it? Yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily the kind of stuff NSF would, right. would support. But yes, there is a little wiggle room built in. The Democrats got a sort of wiggle room built in about that if it's uh, supporting a basic science kind of thing. But basically, there's this move to decide that if there isn't a kind of research that's sort of appropriate nationally, then it's not supposed to be done. And you can imagine the field I work in, sex research, that's going to put a real damper on a lot of different kinds of sex research. And we've already seen sex research be subject to a lot of constraints. One of the reasons, incidentally, that I, I mean, I admire your work, I mean, on two fronts. Number one, that you're courageous. You're one of the sort of rare academics that is willing to speak out. And I dare say that I'm one of the other such academics. Uh, but also, I, I very much uh, can, can relate to your specific battles within sex research, because as somebody who introduced evolutionary psychology to the field of consumer behavior, the idea that consumers are biological beings that are shaped by an evolutionary history, that there might be innate sex differences, uh, I mean, is, is heresy, right? I mean, things are slowly changing, but uh, the amount of blowback that I've received has been uh, astonishing. So I could really relate to some of the stuff that, that you do. Maybe you could start by telling us how did, I mean, you're a historian of science and a a philosopher of science, or, or right? Yep. So what led you to specifically use your training 
to these issues? How did you make that choice? Well, when I was in graduate school, my dissertation director thought, because I was interested in gender and science, that I should look at the history of what happened to hermaphrodites in the 19th century. And I thought I would look at Darwin's barnacles, which were hermaphroditic, and maybe embryology. But he said, no, no, look at medicine. And I thought, why? It doesn't happen in humans past the embryonic stage, because I had never heard of it. So then I started looking at medicine. I was astonished to discover there were hundreds upon hundreds of case studies that I had never heard of these conditions. So I started to write the history of the late 19th and early 20th century and people who had been born with these conditions today started contacting me in the mid-1990s and saying, uh, you know, we're trying to change the medical treatment of this system. Will you help us? So I looked into what was going on and became one of the members of the intersex patients' rights movements and also then one of the leaders of that movement. And so I worked for many years as both an academic studying historically, philosophically, these kinds of issues, but then also as an activist at the same time. And what happened was in 2005, as I was kind of wrapping up that work, I ended up doing a history of the controversy over Mike Bailey's book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. And this was a book that had taken an unpopular but um, actually not, not unprogressive view of transgenderism, which was that in the cases of male to female individuals, not only was gender at play, but also sexual orientation and erotic issues. And so he had published that book and been beset upon by activists and what ended up happening was they sort of moved to ruin his life, ruin his career. I thought when I came to write the history of this about three years after it happened that it would be kind of a he said, she said story, that it would be, you know, Mike was um, politically incorrect and sort of in, inappropriate with some language and all of that, and that these people were upset because of the challenges he was putting towards their identity. But what I found was that they had actually pretty much made shit up, that they had made up charges against him and that they knew were not true. And that they had very successfully um, garnered the help of the liberal media to go after him, to paint him as a crazy right-wing sort of Nazi-like character um, who had committed all sorts of offenses. And none of that was true. So when I published my year-long study of that situation in Archives of Sexual Behavior, which was a Target article in 2008... All those folks came after me, which I kind of knew was going to happen because I had written the book on what happened to Bailey. So it was extremely unpleasant, and um, my choices were to sort of either shut down or to go forth. And Steve Pinker at that time, who had sort of gotten caught into the Bailey controversy in a minor way, read the article and said, this is really great, and you know, would you like me to give you an introduction to my agent? I said, I'd like you to actually help me get a Guggenheim Fellowship because I think these people are going to ruin my reputation. At, at the time that happened to me, Google algorithms were different, and it was very easy to take over somebody's Google Googleable identity immediately, and that's what they did with me. They completely changed my online identity within days, and so it was really shocking and upsetting. There were threats against me and my family, all sorts of awful things. So I got the Guggenheim, and what I did was go forward and interview other researchers who had been attacked over identity politics issues for saying things that were not necessarily non not progressive, but were interpreted as being inappropriate. Um, not in keeping with the identity movements. And I also maintained my sympathy for activism because I think it's really important in social democracies to have activism that moves us forward. So the book is really an exploration of kind of trying to figure out how do we treat each other well and where do we go. And at the end of the day, what I come down to is we've got to let facts guide us, that we can't have a situation where we let ideologies, that, that the only ideology I'm really going to accept is the idea that evidence matters. Right. Well, so let's drill down on the specific case with Bailey. Sure. Uh, I learned a new uh, term, which I need to go to it because I, it's only entered my 
uh, lexicon. Now, let's see if I can pronounce it properly. Autogynephilia, which yes. basically, let me see if I can explain it and you correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's the case of transsexualism where uh, the, the man is, is not ma- making that transition because of gi- gender identity issues, but rather because he has a sexual fantasy about being a woman who is engaging in intimate contact with another man. With another man. Is that roughly right? Well, you have the sexual part mostly right, okay. but gender identity is implicated in our sexuality. So to say it's not about gender, I think, would be wrong. So, for example, when I'm having sex, I'm having sex as a woman. I'm playing a role of, as a woman. I feel like I'm a woman. So I think for most of us, uh, gender actually matters to our sexual orientations. So for the folks who have autogynephilia, they're natal males who feel... A sexual arousal towards women, so that's the gynophilia part, but they also are aroused by the idea of being or becoming women. So in addition to being attracted to women, they're attracted to the idea of being a woman. And not all transition. So some choose to simply um, cross-dress or to fantasize and to enjoy their sexual orientation that way. But some feel that the only way they can really live out their sexual orientation is to sort of come out in a particular way, which is to transition and to become women. And I think it's a perfectly legitimate sexual orientation in the sense that I think all sexual orientations are weird (laughs) once you look at them. I think heterosexuality looks very strange once you look at it closely. So this is a sort of form of heterosexuality that is kind of a takeoff uh, in a different direction. And it does implicate gender, but what Bailey did that was so politically incorrect was to talk about it as an erotic issue. And also to suggest that transgenderism is not a simple either or. And the transgender movement tends to want to claim that we're all born with one brain sex and that's the one we are. And, you know, some of us come out as being different from what we were assigned as birth, but it's all very simple. And what Bailey suggests is actually quite similar to feminist orientations, which is to say gender is very complicated and we don't really understand where it comes from and how it develops. And we don't entirely understand if one person who says she feels like a woman feels the same thing as another person who says she feels like a woman. So gender gender is actually, I think, in Bailey's book, much more like a sort of feminist perspective where it's understood to be very complicated. But that's, that's anathema to the transgender rights movement for the most part. Well, th- this kind of sort of ideology linked to sexuality reminds me of something that I remarked in one of my books where I talked about, uh, say, in queer theory, uh, you know, the, the sort of the standard mantra is that you are, you're born gay, but then uh, heterosexuality is a social construction. So we are a sexually reproducing species where the default value of homosexuality is, quote, natural and innate, but heterosexuality is imposed by some sort of evil, nefarious patriarchy. So it's, it's frankly laughable as somebody who is steeped in, obviously, evolution. It just it behooves one to, to think how somebody could hold such, such positions, right? Well, it's worth remembering, too, that 25 years ago, saying that people who were gay were born that way was considered extremely politically incorrect by the gay rights movement. And Bailey got in trouble for saying that 25 (laughs) years ago. Bailey was doing twin studies, and his twin studies were suggesting that there was a strong innate component to sexual orientation in males in particular. He was finding evidence of there likely being a gay gene or some sort of innate characteristic that caused some men to be gay. And he was considered an enemy then of the gay rights movement because of the idea that he would lead to a eugenics, you know, his, his research right. would lead to a eugenics that would result in gay children being prevented from being born. Well, you know, so I guess 
as somebody who studied mathematics in my earlier academic career, so if you look at, say, in uh, Boolean algebra, the, the, the truth of a statement, right, true or false, uh, it, you know, can be established. In, mm -hmm. in, in the scientific method, if you, you know, apply it properly, you posit a hypothesis, you collect the data, and then the data speaks. When it comes to what I call the epistemology of ideology, the way that you establish the, quote, veracity of a position is whether it fits your ideology or not. So, so by its very definition, it is anti-science. It is anti-reason. And I yeah. guess maybe that's why folks like you and I, who I'd like to think are committed to the pursuit of truth, we get all riled up and fight these guys. Because I get genuinely offended by bullshit, right? Yeah. And, and so I go after folks, not because individually they upset me but because if you're going to espouse in the public arena of ideas bullshit i'm coming after you and if i lose then i lost fairly yep so i agree yeah no absolutely and, and it does irritate me i mean that's the number one thing that irritates me when people in particular when people make shit up not just when they bullshit but when they make shit up right. knowing they're making shit up and then push it and push it that really irritates me and really the whole book Galileo's middle finger is one long irritation over exactly that right now uh, i want to come back to i have sort of all the key themes within your latest book that i'd like to drill down on but you're no longer a professor you resigned recently do you wish to talk about that at all because it kind of speaks to your general ethos of how you conduct your intellectual life sure so uh in in 2013, I was asked to be the editor for our department's uh, journal, which it, it's, it's kind of like halfway between a magazine and a journal. It's called Atrium, and it's put out by the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program at Northwestern's Medical School. And what it does is has a theme for every issue, and people write essays around that theme. So we've had themes like the liminal, power. I mean, these are humanities themes, you know, and people would write essays Nurses, doctors, medical humanities scholars, bioethicists, patients would write essays around the theme. And I was asked to do the bad girls issue. We thought that would be funny if I did the bad girls issue since I have a history of being a bad girl. But also because it had a real feminist overtone that worked well with my work in terms of how do we think about who gets labeled a girl? How do we think about what ways women get labeled as bad that if a man did it, a man would not be so labeled? So I was really excited about doing the special issue for that one. And um, I put out the call, got about 35 proposals, could accept about 13 of them. One of them was from Bill Peace, who's a cultural anthropologist at Syracuse University, and he wrote about the story of when he was spinal cord injured in 1978 from a progressive neurological disease. So he became paralyzed from the waist down at the age of 18. And at the time, 1978, he was put in a long-term rehab facility to try to rehabilitate you know, to get back whatever function he could. And the doctors couldn't and wouldn't answer any of his questions about sexuality. He wanted to know, will I be able to have sex? Will I be able to have children? And they sort of just kept avoiding the question. So he tells the story about how the nurses did not avoid this issue, that for some men who were in a position to accept um, a sexual relationship with a nurse, occasionally the nurses would engage in sexual relations. So he tells the story of one night um, thinking that he had gotten bladder control, finally losing bladder control, being very upset, crying, hitting the nurse call button, and the nurse coming and comforting him and reassuring him about his sexuality by going down on him, by giving him a blowjob. And he tells this story in this essay in a very non-pornographic way, to my mind. You know, you just pissed yourself all over the bed is not the way Playboy stories open, right? <laughs> 
Um, but in the piece, he didn't suggest that this is how we should deal with rehabilitation medicine today. But he did ask the question, are we yet dealing with the sexual needs of people with disabilities, which we're really not. So it's a very provocative, really interesting piece. And in addition to that, you know, the, the, the whole issue contained pieces on abortion, actually pieces that made me squeamish on abortion, on women as caregivers, on birth. I mean, it was all over the place. We had Paul Vasey's work on the Fafafine in Samoa. So it was kind of a lot of intense stuff, as always. So it was published, sent out to 3,000 subscribers, put online. And in the meantime, I'm fact-checking my book, Galileo's Middle Finger, you know, lawyering it and doing final page proofing. And suddenly my dean comes across uh, the issue of Atrium and decides that this might, that Pieces article might violate a branding agreement with Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And so he orders it censored, pulled offline. So this was already published. This is not, was this censorship? This was censorship. It was already published. And he insisted that Pieces article be pulled offline. Now he didn't, it wasn't willing to say anything publicly, so it happened quietly. And my colleagues told me about it, and I was, of course, very upset and said, this is incredibly ironic. I have this book coming out on academic freedom and on the fact that sex research gets you in trouble, right? This is another case of sex getting us in trouble. Um, and so what happened was for many months, we tried to fix it internally, and the dean simply wouldn't uh, put it back. And finally, after 15 months of this, my book had come out. Bill knew about it. Bill and I got disgusted, and I said to the dean, we've had it. We're going public with this. And so when we said that, they said, oh, okay, put it back online. And I was so disgusted at that point. I said to Bill, you know, we have an obligation to other people to tell people what happened because this kind of stuff where the branding agreement of the university is considered to be threatened causes censorship of legitimate scholarship and legitimate writing is not okay. So we went public and I continued to press my provost to acknowledge the censorship and to assure me it wouldn't happen again and he wouldn't do it. So in August of last year, I finally decided I couldn't work in such a place because I, I do risky work all the time. There have been many times over the years where other deans have gotten calls about me and been asked to fire me, and they've stood up for my academic freedom. This dean won't do it, and so I can't work in such an environment. So I submitted my resignation quite publicly and said that Northwestern was not no longer supporting academic freedom because of the branding agreement with the hospital. Wow. I mean, talk about skin in the game. Uh, now, did they, did they try to uh, sort of stop you from taking this decision, or was it, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out? <laughs> <laughs> you know, once the, the funny thing, honestly, is that as I was arguing with them in private before it all went public, I kept saying to them, do you know who I am and what I do? Like, you know, don't test me, because I'm not somebody who's afraid of a public fight. I'm not somebody who's afraid of calling bullshit. And, you know, I have a very national reputation. I have a national book which has been positively reviewed by the New York Times and is very well received. Like, don't put me in this position. You don't want to, you do not want to be in the position of fighting me. And all the dean's office kept saying was, congratulations on your book. And, you know, they said to me, look, we paid for it, so we get to pull it. I said, really? So any of my work that's funded by Northwestern, you get to pull if you don't like it? I said, if you don't like this book, does that mean I have to pull the book from publication now? Like, it was ridiculous. Their whole response was ridiculous. But honestly, I think they never Googled me. I think they never bothered to look me up because they were in a medical school and I didn't have a million dollar grant. So they did not bother to figure out what I do and, and how I do it. So when it, it, though, it really depressed me to have to turn on Northwestern because Northwestern made that book possible. Lots of administrators before this guy made possible the work. They had gotten calls from, to try to fire me. And over and over again, they had said, she has academic freedom, go away. 
Wow. They've supported me all the way over the years. You know, they sometimes ask me for the evidence of what I was saying, and I would present it to them. I would say, here's the evidence for what I'm working on, you know, here's the, and they would say, fine, you know, as long as, as long as what you're doing is honest and truthful, you can do what you want to do. But not this guy. No, honest and truthful doesn't matter if it's going to upset the hospital trustees, right? Then, well, then we have to freak out. About a job in 1978, <laughs> 35 years ago. Wow, incredible. Now, of course, that general uh, timidity that you speak of amongst the administrators, uh, of course, extends beyond the specific context of sort of academic freedom. Uh, the, the whole, you know, the microaggressions and the safe spaces and the cultural appropriation, uh, which I, I recently gave a, uh, a lecture at, uh, hosted at the University of Ottawa on this. Uh, I mean, do you, do, do you see this as something that eventually will hopefully the fulcrum will swing back the other way? Or are we basically doomed in a sea of political correctness? Well, you know, I think you have this toxic combination now where you've got the sea of political correctness. But in addition to that, what we've got is administrators who are not really scholars. These are business people increasingly at universities. And as a consequence, how do they think? Well, they think in a corporate mentality yeah. that doesn't value academic freedom because academic freedom is not monetizable. Academic freedom doesn't produce money, right? In fact, it sometimes gets in the way of money production because it causes kerfuffles. And so what you've got with this obsession with the brand, which all the universities now have, is a concept of staying on one message, having one message. Academic freedom by its nature cannot be about a single message. It has to be about messages that are diverse, in contradiction, uncomfortable, dangerous, right? It has to be about that. So the problem is that we have administrators who don't value what we value, which is the idea of going wherever the data takes you. What we've got is the idea of dangerous administrators combined with students and some faculty who are seeking to shut us up if what we say makes them uncomfortable. And the administrators are perfectly happy to use those people as an excuse to shut the rest of us down. They are perfectly happy to take the leftists and use corporate values to say, oh, well, you're upsetting people who are marginalized historically, and therefore we can't upset those people. So it really is, I think, a toxic combination of money plus progressivism. Truer words have never been spoken on this and, podcast. Know, I I mean, I'm a feminist. Yeah. I maintain, maintain my feminism. I absolutely work for the rights of people who are marginalized and oppressed. But that doesn't mean that anybody who disagrees with me needs to be shut down. Well, I'll give you a, 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 a very uh, contentious example of what we're talking about. Uh, Geert Wilders is a Dutch politician who is famous for speaking very forcefully and bluntly about the Islamization of uh, the Netherlands in particular, but the West in general. And, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't pull any punches. Uh, the Dutch courts took him, I mean, filed, I mean, accused him of hate speech. And in his defense, he explained that, well, I mean, not that my speech should be allowed or not as a function of whether it's truthful or not, right? I mean, Holocaust deniers are incorrect in their positions, but yet they have the right to spew mm -hmm. their, their bullshit, right? But he yep. said, but are you contesting the veracity, the truth of any of the statements that I've say, said? And the response by the Dutch magistrate should, should, should send chills up anybody who's listening. They said, it doesn't matter whether what you say is true or not. To the extent that what you say hurts a marginalized group, then you're not allowed. That is part of hate speech. I mean, that's breathtaking, right? I mean, think about it the is. tradition of freedom of speech, of enlightenment in the West, and that a Dutch magistrate can say that, it's quite disheartening, right? 
It is absolutely. No, but this is the kind of thing we're seeing in universities all over the place. So we, we just saw the case in the UK breaking out in the last couple of days of um, Peter Thatchell, who's a gay rights activist, being labeled transphobic and therefore being said that he shouldn't come to campuses to speak. This happens to me where students who are transgender activists claim that I've said things that are anti-trans rights, which I don't think I have, but claim that I shouldn't be invited and should be you know replaced by people who are transgender activists because I'm daring to come and speak on things that I think need to be spoken about. This happens again and again, and it, it's, to my mind, absolutely the wrong approach to the university. So the Chicago University of Chicago put out a couple years ago the Chicago Principles, which are something that's being adopted by a lot of universities, that talks very specifically about it is our job to say uncomfortable things when we have to, to debate each other, to discuss, to discourse, but it is not our job to shut things down. It is certainly not the university's job to decide who will be shut down. In the U.S., you know, we have these crazy things at some universities called free speech zones. Yeah in which you're allowed to stand in a little corralled area. And, and it's like uh, 0.5% of the actual uh, surface area of the university campus, right? Uh, the concept that an entire university would not be a free speech zone is just terrifying to right. me. I mean, well, why should we not have a free speech zone? Well, this reminds me, by the way, uh, and I think you're, you, you know him, uh, Greg uh, Lukianov from mm -hmm. FIRE. He was actually on the show. And, uh, he, you know, he talks about the exact issue that you just mentioned, uh, but he also talks about uh, disinvitation season, something that I discussed in my University of Ottawa talk on political correctness, where he they actually analyzed the number of disinvitations, which of course is an underestimate of the actual number, uh, of, I think from something like 2000 to 2014. And the, the, the trend is really accelerating, right? So anybody who is invited, who could offend potentially anyone, could be prone to a whole witch hunt of sort of disinvitation efforts. I mean, it's chilling. It is chilling. And I have to say that when I track sort of who it is within academia that ends up getting in trouble, men and women seem to get equally in trouble. But the people who end up being driven out are women and people of color. And so one of my concerns, again, is that what's happening is the left comes after us but then the right, you know, the corporate interests are really able to then get rid of the people who make them generally uncomfortable. And who is that? That's often people like me who are the yeah. feminist, you know, active, aggressive women. And so the people on the left think that they're accomplishing something. But what they're accomplishing is just being used essentially by corporate interests right. to basically shut down anything that might make the university look bad, anything that might make the university uncomfortable. They, they really should wake up and see the ways in which they're feeding the administrative agenda about corporatizing the entire university systems and making them utterly unoffensive to everybody. So yes, yesterday there was a new piece in USA Today about the new director of the Kinsey Institute, who, you know, I'm sure is a perfectly fine researcher. She studies voles and studies um, endocrine differences in terms of voles and figuring out what happens when they bond. And I think that's great, right? Because it, it provides an actual biological basis for understanding sex and romance and all that kind of stuff. So I have no problem with the idea of doing that kind of thing. But one of the things she was talking about was that, you know, we have to understand sexuality in the context of relationships. And we have to think about love and we have to think about pair bonding. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is exactly it. The Kinsey has been taken over by the corporate interests who believe the safest way to study sex is to study basically heterosexual monogamy, right? And maybe gay, but basically heterosexual monogamy. She's even quoted in there as saying that she's got a statue that has uh, a penis showing and she turns it around in her office so that visitors are not offended. 
if you come into the Kinsey, you should expect to see penises. <laughs> so what's going on there? I think what's going on there is, again, the corporatization, the idea of being brand central. She talks about the Kinsey brand, which disgusts me. None of us should put up with the branding talk. It's just very, very troubling. Now, you are speaking to a professor at a business school. No, I'm, I'm kidding about the branding thing. No, I have a problem with businesses having brands. <laughs> I have a problem with universities having brands. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. Let's So let's continue drilling down with some of the, because there are so many incredible examples that you discuss in your book. So, uh, by the way, uh, speaking of, I, I don't know if it is politically correct to call it now transsexualism, uh, but I thought of two movies uh, that were certainly, that marked me, where those themes were certainly key elements of the plot lines. Can you guess which movies I might be thinking of? I'm not going to dare. <laughs> uh, number one, you probably can't. I mean, we're, I think, roughly the same age, so you might remember this movie. Uh, Dress to Kill with, oh, yes. with Michael Caine, who plays a psychiatrist who wishes to transition into being a woman, but who goes as a serial If you don't want to know the plot line, turn away now. Uh, trigger warning. Uh, he, goes, he goes and kills patients who arouse him sexually as a man precisely because in his mind, you know, it, it makes then the transition, uh, you know, more difficult to, to achieve. And then the other movie that I'm thinking of, of, which I think many people would know, is Silence of the Lambs with the Buffalo Bill, right? Yeah, uh, so th this is the, the old trope, right? That 50 years before this, homosexuality was portrayed as always leading to psychopathic murder. Right. Th these movies are not <laughs> helpful, right? These movies are not helpful. And I, I don't think the term transsexualism is particularly useful, okay. except talking about transsex interventions. I would use it as an adjective to talk about the interventions that are done because it is true that the primary thing that occurs when somebody transitions is a gender transition. The primary thing that's occurring for them is a situation where what they're doing is now um, presenting themselves in a gender that feels more comfortable for them, not necessarily having particular interventions. So I think transgender is a better term, but we do need to recognize that transgender is not an either or thing, right. that some people are genderqueer, some folks have um, gender nonconformity, which again is different from transgender. And confusing all of those things together and calling them all one thing doesn't help anybody. Got you. All right, let's move on to, uh, oh yes, actually that's a personal friend of mine. The Randy Thornhill and Craig Palmer uh, rape is part of the adaptive strategies that men have evolved to have. You want to talk about that, and then I could put in, infuse a few personal anecdotes into it. Go ahead. So Randy is more inclined to think of it as adaptive, and um, Craig is actually more inclined to think of it as byproducts. But they put out the book, A Natural History of Rape, which was utterly misunderstood as in the mainstream media as largely being an apology for rape, as saying men who rape have an excuse because they have a biological urge to do so, that rape victims should basically be blamed because they had data showing that um, rape victims tend to be disproportionately younger, more attractive, etc. So none of that was the case with their book. What they were really trying to do was to understand biological bases for sexual coercion in an effort actually to help prevent rape, to help prosecute rape. I mean, I tell the story in the book where I interviewed Craig, and he spoke specifically about being motivated by the desire to see rape appropriately prosecuted. So it's not as all at all as if they were apologists for rape, but the two of them suffered death threats, bomb threats, um, Craig was in a particularly precarious position because he was untenured at the time. And so he was, it would have been easy for his dean to just sort of quietly remove his contract the next year and say, go find a job elsewhere. But she didn't do that. Um, so what happened to them was pretty terrifying. And actually, compared to what happened to me, I think they had it much worse. So that, that was kind of comforting in a weird way. Well, I, I, 
I went, uh, I was invited uh, to University of New Mexico where Randy is. They have an amazing group of uh, evolutionary behavioral scientists. And uh, so we, we got to chatting about this issue and he shared with me some of the the threats that he he was receiving. And it was just, it, it seemed incredible that in the 21st century on an American campus, this reality could be happening. I mean, you think of sort of the, the, the hardcore Islamists coming after you if you dare you know, draw a cartoon of Muhammad, but you don't think that, uh, you know, Randy Thornhill could get death threats. So, yeah, I mean, incredible story. I mean, the the bias here is one that I see often, uh, not just when it comes to evolutionary explanations for rape, but evolutionary psychology in general, where people conflate uh, repeatedly, and it doesn't matter how often you explain it to them, they think that when you provide a evolutionary explanation for a phenomenon, that is tantamount to justifying it and or condoning it, right? Absolutely. So child abuse. Oh, so you're saying it's okay for a stepfather to rape his daughter. No, of course I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that uh, having a stepparent in the family uh, is a hundredfold greater predictor of having abuse in the family than anything else. I mean, don't you want to know that fact if you want to create proper intervention strategies? Right. Uh, right? If you say, uh, here are some reasons why uh, it might be tough for people to stay true to their monogamous unions. Oh, so you're using this to justify why you might cheat on your wife, you sexist pig, right? Uh, so it's just an endless cascade of bullshit that comes your way, precisely because people commit this sort of cognitive fallacy, and it almost seems impenetrable to reason, right? Yes, yes, I think that's <laughs> absolutely right. It does feel impenetrable to reason. It's the naturalistic fallacy over and over again. Exactly. And I think what we have to do is more widespread education in terms of explaining to people what biology means. And and here, you know, this is one of the places where the born that way rhetoric around gay rights drives me nuts because I, I keep saying to them over and over again, what if you weren't born that way? Does that mean you shouldn't be entitled to have sex with somebody of the same gender if you want to? I think you should. I think sex should be about consent and about pleasure, right? And who you marry should be about the two of you being consenting adults. The issue is not whether you were born that way or not. So it's, to me, very frustrating to see that kind of rhetoric used because it plays into the naturalistic fallacy that somehow if you're gay, you have to have gay marriage, you have to have gay sex. No, because frankly, the pedophiles are now saying the same thing, that I was born this way and therefore I'm entitled to these rights and children are capable of their own rights and they could consent and I want to say no at the end of the day we really need to think more rationally about it but you're right it does occur over and over again you know I have to explain to people all the time I believe in biology and I am a feminist these two things are not contradictory <laughs> you know I, I wrote once a psychology today article where I was satirizing exactly the position that you know evolutionary psychology is this grand conspiracy of sexist you know males who've, who've concocted this whole field and so what i do in the article and i'll, I'll, I'll maybe i'll link it at the bottom of the description sure. of this YouTube clip, uh, i basically start listing all of the unbelievably influential evolutionary psychologists who are women, women. and in many cases staunch Feminist. feminists and Absolutely. then i say look i have uncovered this whole gang of additional sexist white males and then i start listing all the women and guess what all the bullshitters run away because yeah. when faced with facts then they they have to kind of lick their wounds and come back at you from another angle uh, so yeah uh, let's go on with some other ones oh this one's a good one Patrick, is it Tierney? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, with his whole, uh, I say Chagnon, but apparently he doesn't like when you pronounce it the French way. He likes he likes Chagnon. So uh, maybe you could tell us about that story because that's a real juicy one. 
Yeah, so Napoleon Chagnon, a very famous anthropologist who did work in the Venezuela-Brazil area on the Yanomama people. And in the 1960s, he was working in conjunction with James Neal, who's a famous geneticist physician. Um, and they ended up getting accused in Patrick Tierney's book in, in 2000, a book called Darkness in El Dorado, of having purposely carried out a eugenical program where they used a vaccine for the measles epidemic that they supposedly knew was... Uh, was a bad vaccine that supposedly caused an epidemic. And in an early version of Tierney's work, the allegation was that when somebody said to Neil, well, we have to you know, rush ahead and try to treat people and get them the vaccine, Neil said, no, no, we're going to wait and see who will live and who will die, like some kind of Nazi Mengele experiment. All of that was false, but Tierney's book was used uh, by the American Anthropological Association to basically try Shagnon for two years through a special task force designed to look into the book. And what I uncovered in my work from Sarah Hurdy, who's one of the feminist yeah. <laughs> uh, people. Feminist males, males, right? She's a male. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Hurdy uh, gave me, supposedly accidentally, a, uh, <laughs> a memo that was in her own files from the time that showed that the head of the task force actually knew that the book was full of falsehoods, but decided to proceed anyway because of the claim that, you know, we have to do this in order to show that we care about marginalized peoples. So Shagnon was basically prosecuted for two years with the idea that the American Anthropological Association needed to prove its leftist credentials and prove that it cared about indigenous peoples. And it was absolutely ridiculous. So many other scientific societies at the time did a quick look at what was going on and came out and immediately said, no, it's not true. Um, you know, Tierney's stuff is not true. The evidence is that, in fact, the vaccine was not a bad vaccine, that the epidemic broke out before they even got to the field, that as soon as it did break out, they tried to race ahead and save people. But over and over again, this step was used, mostly Tierney in conjunction with um, Terry Turner, who died recently. And Turner was a big enemy of Chagnon because he didn't like sociobiology and he didn't like the way Chagnon did his work. And Chagnon was, of course, an extremely vociferous adherent to sociobiology and the big promoter in anthropology of sociobiology. I tell the story in the book, actually, of when the first time Chagnon had tried to have a session at the American Anthropological Association on sociobiology, and there was a motion in the public business meeting to suppress the session, to, to stop the session from occurring. And Margaret Mead actually got up at the time and said that this was akin to book burning and she would have none of it. And it was only because Mead stood up for Chagnon, which did not mean Mead was a sociobiologist. She just thought this was horseshit. To suppress a scientific discussion because it made you politically uncomfortable was absolutely ridiculous. I'm surprised that she did that. I would have thought that she would have been in the camp of the, you know, obviously the cultural relativists who would be very threatened by his stuff. So I think she's overly interpreted as a cultural relativist. She certainly believed in evolution, believed in the importance of, I, I think, believed in the importance of sex differences. If you look at her work carefully, I think she gets misunderstood as being um, overly simplistic. But the other thing is she and Chagnon were friends. And also she just did not like suppression of free speech. And she saw this as suppression of free speech. She was a 1960s radical and that persisted. And she saw this as absolute McCarthyism, which it really was. Wow. Now, what is, I mean, what is the key sort of ideological driver that, that, that made him uh, go on this witch hunt? Is it the sort of noble, savage anthropologist of peace? And therefore, since Shagnon is talking about the fierce people who kill one another and so on, that shatters that myth? Or what's, it, it has, has it ever been proven? And I'm sorry if you've covered it in your book. I didn't go through every single word of your book. Uh, is, is there a reason why he engaged in this type of duplicity? Well, Turner, the anthropologist, I think, had just 
set his sights on Shagnon and yes, did not like the noble, preferred the noble savage myth to what Shagnon was finding. Um, Also, in some ways, I think just picked on Shagnon because Turner was a bit of a narcissist and and narcissists tend to pick on big people and fight them because it makes them bigger. But as far as Tierney goes, I think there's an open question as to why Tierney put forth all this false information in his book. And one of the things I found that I track in my book was his relationship with the Catholic Church. And Shagnon had gotten into a battle with the Catholic missionaries in the area because Shagnon claimed that the missionaries were actually very bad for the Yanomama people, that it was causing disease and causing cultural degradation and causing all sorts of problems. So Shagnon was very aggressively going after the Salesian missionaries, and Tierney was essentially um, working with the Salesian missionaries. So it's funny because when Shagnon first told me that story, when we began our interviews, I thought, oh, he's just got a Galileo fantasy going, right? Where he's being persecuted by the Catholic Church. And he would often, he would often compare himself to Galileo. But um, I thought, you know, this is just crazy. But the more I looked into Tierney, the more I thought, huh, he's actually right that, you know, the, the, the missionaries actually had come after Shagnon and had teamed up with Tierney to some extent. That doesn't fully explain what Tierney did. But I think it's a critical part of what Tierney did that a lot of the liberals didn't realize was going on, that there was a, a Salesian versus Shagnon um, situation going on. For example, I also found a scholar had discovered that these defamatory packets about Shagnon claiming he had purposely harmed lots of Yanomama people that were being distributed at the, the AAA meetings were actually being distributed by the Salesian missionaries. So that they actually had come after him over and over again. His fantasy was not entirely incorrect. The Catholics had it out for him <laughs> because he was harshly criticizing the Catholics. And I should say, by the way, that not everybody agrees with Shagdown that the missionaries were as harmful as he claims. Um, so I think that that part of his work, as much of his work, remains controversial. But his right to you know, proceed forward and publish his work and to dare to say that indigenous people sometimes rape, they go to war over women, they use drugs, they you know, fart, belch, as he puts it, they do all of that is not somehow not caring about them. That's actually caring about them enough to have reality right. about them. Right. You know, my, my sole uh, exposure in, in a face-to-face manner with uh, Shagman was at uh, HVS, Human Behavior and Evolution Society meetings. I can't remember exactly when, maybe 2006 or 2005, somewhere around there, about 10 years ago. And uh, he was walking around sort of in a very Indiana Jones way with his hat and, you know, larger than life and always followed by this uh, troop of sort of BBC. I think they were they were doing a BBC documentary on him. And I've never personally interacted with him, but he certainly exuded a I am very confident in who I am vibe. Uh, so, so, yeah. He does, but I mean, I tell the story in the book of how he broke down essentially crying when we were talking about what he had been through, and I was very moved by that. I mean, he's a very tough man, a very tough character. What he went through in the field was unbelievable. What he survived in the field, you know, wars, jaguars, uh, snakes, people, you know, maybe wanting to kill him. I mean, it was what he went out and did in the field was astonishing to bring back all this information for science. So he's one tough son of a bitch. But what they put him through with the AAA, essentially ruining his reputation, ruining his life, was extremely upsetting. And I could understand why it was that he sort of lost it when we were talking about oh. it. So what is it? What's the end result now with Tierney? I mean, because he hasn't really come out much in public. So uh, has he admitted to anything? What what's sort of the the, the epilogue of this whole story? 
No, he doesn't admit to having done anything wrong. Okay. And he's basically gone silent for the most part. So that's very curious to my mind why it is that he won't speak publicly about what happened. I tried contacting him multiple times in multiple ways to get him to speak to me and he wouldn't do so. Um, when my work came out in, on Shagnon, it actually came out first in an article in Human Nature, which is available for free online because I, I paid to have it available for free. So your, your listeners are welcome to go look that up. It's Human Nature. And it's called uh, Darkness's Descent on the um, AAA, essentially. And um, in that article, I documented exactly what the AAA had done and why it was so egregious and why they had basically been doing it in the name of leftist politics, not in the name of reality. And the year after that, uh, Shagnon was finally elected to the National Academy of Sciences. He had been put up for election multiple times, but I think smoke had been swirling around him. And so they needed kind of a historian to come in and clean the air. And I was very pleased to see he was elected. And so he and Ray Hames now have a National Science Foundation grant basically processing Shagnon's old data from the field. So I think that's going to be extremely good and very, very useful to science. Very interesting. I guess the last one from your book, and then I want to move on to some other stuff. Uh, Maria News work with uh, DEX uh, as a means of treating uh, congenital uh, adrenal hyperplasia. And then I'll talk about uh, how I've written about this specific endocrinological disorder, but maybe you could describe this a bit. Sure. So in 2009, I was supposed to be kind of wrapping up the book and my old intersex rights allies contacted me, including some clinicians and told me that uh, this endocrinologist that we all knew very well, because she's very distinguished member of the National Academy of Sciences, Maria New, had been pushing a prenatal treatment on parents uh, at risk of having a child with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH. So CAH is a genetic disease where the parents can be carriers, one out of four of the kids will have it if both parents are carriers. And in the females, because there's a high level of androgens, it causes masculinization of the genitals and also, as far as we could tell, some masculinization of the brain as well. And so the idea was to intervene as soon as possible in pregnancy using the steroid dexamethasone to interrupt that chemical pathway and essentially force the females to become um, female, which in theory I have no problem with. I don't think there's anything more special about being intersex than there is about being male or female. So I've got, and life is simpler if you um, end up, right now life is certainly simpler if you end up with a standard male or standard female body. But the problem was that New was pushing this as having been sound, found safe for mother and child and was at the same time getting NIH money to find out whether it was safe for mother and child using the population that she had sold it to saying it was safe for mother and child. So I found this horrifying that you would simultaneously recruit a patient population with an off-label use of a powerful drug that crosses the placental barrier and changes fetal development and by the way, one out of eight of the fetuses could never benefit because you had to start so early in the process that you didn't know if the fetus had CAH, only one out of four would, and only half of those would be female. So seven out of eight of the fetuses would be subject to this drug that crosses the placental barrier and changes development in ways that are very unpredictable without any chance of benefit. That you'd recruit the patient population with the claim this was safe and then go to the NIH and say, we don't know if this is safe, give us some money, we'll find out using this patient population retrospectively. And using them retrospectively as you know, is poor science. In addition, there had never been a clinical control trial of this, so we don't know if it's safe. It's been used in astonishingly bad ways and really abusively on this population. So I, um, with other colleagues, blew the whistle on this and went to the federal government. I tell the story in the book of how the federal government basically sat on its ass um, for complicated conflict of interest reasons and didn't, didn't end up pursuing it at all. 
But I ended up um, spending three years of my life using the Freedom of Information Act to get every piece of documentation I could and basically showed it was much worse than I'd ever thought, that in fact what had occurred was extremely ethically problematic in terms of misrepresentations not only to the patients but misrepresentations to the scientific community, to the medical community, and also to the federal agencies. Um, and what happened was really, really disgusting. And so what has been her official response to your uh, work? Her official response has been that uh, I incorrectly claim that she was trying to prevent lesbianism and tomboyism in this population, when in fact her own published work says that she wants to see if dexamethasone can be used to prevent lesbianism and tomboyism in the girls, because higher levels of androgen seems to lead to more of those behaviors. Um, she also makes the claim that uh, she didn't, that, that the children are perfectly fine, which I show she's lost most of the population and that the numbers that are coming out of it make no sense. And so she basically claims that I'm making stuff up, whereas, you know, I have all of it documented, absolutely documented meticulously. In fact, the lawyer at Penguin complimented me on my documentation. Nice. In fact, it's all true and it's horrifying. And she's still to this day advertising it as safe for mother and child. So I have had to go through the medical system trying to make sure all the physicians know that it's not true that we don't know what this drug does, but the studies out of Sweden suggest it's very dangerous, which is not surprising. It crosses the placental barrier. It's known in primate, non-human primates to change brain development. That's why it's used, because it changes development. And so the idea that you would start this in week three or four of pregnancy is just astonishing. It, it results in levels of glucocorticoids to the fetus 60 to 100 times the normal physiological level. The idea that it wouldn't have some side effects would be ridiculous. Every drug has side effects, but a drug you're using in fetal development that's known to cross the placental barrier and is a glucocorticoid, duh, it's going to be a dangerous situation. But it still goes on today, essentially, at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. So in, in, in when you, you, were, you were mentioning earlier about the sort of the lawyering of your books, uh, is that because the concern is that somebody might come after you under yes. the rubric of uh, you're being libelous and you're being defamatory? Is that the idea? That, yes. That, okay, I see. Has that yeah. ever happened so far? No, well, nobody's ever sued me. Be, um, and I... I very intensely fact check my work because I don't want to defame somebody unfairly. I don't want to slander anybody unfairly. So I could show you, I've shown some people what my manuscripts look like near the end, which is I highlight everything that could be construed as a fact and I check everything I can against what I know. And it's pretty exhausting work. So fact checking this book took, I think, six weeks of nothing yeah. but fact checking the book. You, you know, I, I, I can empathize with what you're going through for different reasons. Uh, in my case, I suffer from pathological perfectionism <laughs> and so you know darwin forbid that there might be a comma that's out of place so when i receive galley proofs of anything i mean certainly a paper is already daunting enough but when i receive the galley proofs of my various books most people will be celebrating that we're almost at the end whereas i know that i'm going to sink into a well of despair where i check and recheck and recheck and doubt and recheck uh, so I hear you. I'm 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 about as punctilious as one can be. Um, so I yeah. wish more more academics were honestly because when I when I talk with many of them, they look at me funny when I say, "At what stage do you fact check your work?" They say, "Well, I'm very accurate all along," and I say, "No, human human nature is that." As you're rewriting, you're rewriting with different verbs and nouns. You're using citations that, you know, you sometimes lose track of. I mean, I even, I fact-checked myself using my own records. And I found mistakes right. from my account where I had misremembered things in opposite ways, where I might have had somebody replace somebody else in my imagination. So I had somebody standing and saying something that actually somebody else said. 
it's normal human nature. I mean, right. Elizabeth Loftus appears in the book too. So I, I know from her work that memory is extremely right. valid. For, for, those, for those of you who don't know, Elizabeth uh, Loftus is a professor at University of California, Irvine, who studies, I think, the uh, veracity or accuracy of memory specifically as applied, or at least most famously as applied to eyewitness testimony, correct? Yes, and also particularly for childhood sexual abuse cases right. where people have sometimes made extremely unbelievable claims but are believed nevertheless because of the idea that you always have to believe everyone who makes a claim of sexual abuse. Right. So uh, one of the things she's shown is that you can actually implant false memories in people. She's demonstrated the ability to do this. And so that's very important because particularly for prosecutions, it's possible to impl implant false memories both in the accused and also the accuser. Right. Uh, going back to CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, the context in which I write about it is when I'm, when I'm constructing an argument for something being, uh, for example, an adaptation or biological-based, uh, I use an epistemological tool known as uh, nomological networks. The idea of evolutionary psychology or evolutionary theory in general is that you get multiple lines of evidence coming from different disciplines, which if they all point to the same direction, then you have strong evidence that whatever argument you're making is a good one. And so at one point, I use this tool uh, to when I'm talking about toy preferences. Uh, mm -hmm. Are toy preferences innate or are they nurtured? And I specifically choose choose toy preferences. Well, one, because as a consumer psychologist, I mean, toys is, is a consumer choice that we make. But it's, it's because social constructivists have often used, uh, you know, uh, toys as the start of the cascade of gender socialization, right? Little Johnny learns to play with blue truck uh, right. uh, and so on. And so one of the lines of evidence that I use in building my nomological network is work that has shown that little girls who suffer from CAH uh, have sex-reversed uh, toy preferences. In other words, their toy preferences are much more akin to those of little boys. And so yes. that's... So that's, and that was actually one of the things New was studying was the question, would dexamethasone change that? Which scientifically is a very interesting question, right? right? Scientifically, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Could you use dexamethasone in such a way that it would indicate to us that sex differences in the brain are, in fact, hormonally based su such that you could interrupt them and change the direction of the, the toy preference kind of stuff? So, yeah, it's, it's, it is super interesting stuff, certainly. The CAH population has been historically very interesting to study. I should mention, by the way, the reason that story is in the book, because it may seem out of place given what we've talked about, is because I'm trying to show in that case that, in fact, there are researchers who are deeply unethical. There really are. It's not Bailey. It's not Chagnon. But there are people who do deeply unethical stuff. And that's why we still need activism, but, but also still need, within the sciences, the attention to data and to honesty and to evidence, because otherwise people like New get away with what she's gotten away with, which right. is millions of dollars of grant funding for basically no real research. Well, you must have heard uh, of the case of... Uh the former Harvard uh, primatologist, uh, Mark Hauser. Are you familiar with that case? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, and, and of course there's a, there are several very famous cases of social psychologists that recently have been uncovered to have uh, been uh, less than forthright in the manner in which they've handled their data. So yeah, there definitely seems to be a, a, a perhaps an epidemic. Uh, I guess as we approach the end of our conversation, I thought I would talk about, uh, you know, sort of the activists on steroids that uh, you could find typically now on Twitter and so on, and maybe discuss specific cases, some of which you might be familiar with and others that you may not be. Uh, so here we go. Uh, I guess 
let's start with some recent ones. Did you hear about the example, uh, the recent case with uh, Stephen Fry? Are you familiar? Yes, yes, where he dared to make some funny comment about a woman's dress and <laughs> was basically chased off of Twitter. I mean, think about this. This guy has over, I think, I don't know how many, 12 million uh, followers. He's got all of the right credentials in terms of sort of being the progressive guy. He's the, the, the gay guy, right? The, you know, so every possible thing is ticked off. And yet he makes a joke that somebody views as deeply offensive and he gets cha- And I mean, he's a, he's a tough guy in the sense that he, he usually fights people, right? He, he stands up for himself and yet he's able to be chased out of Twitter. It's, I mean, it's grotesque, right? It is. It absolutely is. And I, I think many of us have had this kind of experience on social media where it gets totally out of control. Uh, I'm lucky, as I always uh, state, and I'll state it again here, that when it comes to the privilege scores, uh, I score very well in terms of my uh, oppression Olympics or victimology poker. Uh, brown man from the Middle East, overweight, Lebanese Jew, Arab. You can't touch me. I'm untouchable. I just, <laughs> I, I just have to proclaim that I am sexually attracted to Eric Estrada, and then I'm done. I am untouchable. Absolutely. So, th- so there you go. Uh, Richard, well, go ahead. disability would help too. But... <laughs> All right. We can't use my overweight as the form of disability? No? Okay. Well, go. that's very controversial, right? right. So is it an identity or is it a medical issue? I don't know. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, Richard Dawkins being disinvited at some conference because he, sh- he retweeted a clip that was mocking or satirizing the similarity between Islamists and radical feminists. Uh, are you familiar with that uh, situation? Yeah, and my understanding is somewhere along the way, you know, death threats were made against the woman who satirized there and that he deleted the tweet and apologized. So yeah. it seems to me, delete and apologize, you know, once you find out that you've accidentally encouraged something that you didn't mean to encourage seems to me the right approach. I right. don't know. I think... I think that kind of behavior is the sort of thing we're supposed to reward, right? right. Saying you're sorry. <laughs> and, but incidentally, though, in all fairness, they've recently put out a thing saying that reinvited him and so on. I know, but the, the statement they made with it was a pretty pathetic statement yeah. about, you know, these issues tear us apart. And I'm like, well, you started it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, let me give you a few other really interesting ones. Uh, of course, Matt Taylor with the shirt gate, right? He's wearing the sh- This is the, I think, the physicist, right? Uh, Jeffrey Miller, who do you, you would know, think though that that guy would have known not to wear a shirt like that. Fair I mean, enough. Fair enough. His, his shirt was obnoxious, and I, I think the right thing to do would have been to say, "Yeah, I've never really thought about what a stupid, obnoxious shirt this is." I mean, it is a very sexual shirt that he was wearing, yes. and it's it does kind of portray the image that you know this is what you think of women as. It's not the kind of thing I would wear to work. <laughs> My feeling is, I don't know the guy. I've never met him. I think it was just the dolty thing to do. He was just acting as a dolt, as a nerd. In other words, I didn't get the vibe that I got from him was not that he's this sort of a frat boy, rabid, sexist guy. No, I agree. I mean, he was just a dolt, a nerd who, who made a wrong sartorial choice. I mean, let's move on. Uh, here's a good one. You may or may not know this one. Uh, uh, Lazar Greenfield. Do you know this case? No. So he, he was at the time the president-elect of the American College of Surgeons. Yeah, I don't know, 300 papers published, eminent surgeon, yeah, the, the whole credentials. And at one point, he cites a paper, actually one of the co-authors, or maybe two of the co-authors of the paper, I know them personally, uh, good, good, good friends of mine, uh, where they were talking about the, uh, the benefits of exposure to semen to women in oh, terms right. of depressive symptoms and so on. And so he's, he's, he's giving a, a lecture 
uh, about sort of biological basis of mating behavior. And at one point he says, well, so now the next time that there is Valentine's, you could give your woman something more than just chocolates or something, right? Uh, that, which was, I mean, that's literally based on a peer-reviewed article in Archives of Sexual Behavior, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's chased out of the, I mean, he, he resigns as president-elect of the American College of Surgeons. I mean, it's frightening, right? Yeah, but I mean, stuff like that, I do think it's worth listening to your critics and then, you know, apologizing where it's appropriate. But you're right. You, you're not allowed to make a single mistake anymore. And that right. is a really big problem. So, well, you know, with, with uh, Hunt, for example, Tim Hunt in the UK, yes. making the impolitic remarks about women, you know, that whole thing blew up in bizarre directions. And what I recommend to people is put out on your own website what you really said and and I wrote a piece saying, you know, am I the next Tim Hunt because I say things that are politically incorrect and will I be driven out of positions and all of that. But then the right wing that had been supporting Hunt came after me and refused to read what I'd even written. So it happens from all directions. I mean, it's not like it's just one side. It happens from all directions where what you said doesn't matter. And that's a very frightening situation because if you actually say what you think, but what you say doesn't matter how are you supposed to get out of the situation right. incredible and, and i've had a situation where people have put up things allegedly that i've written that i've never written and they're just up on websites with my name on it i don't know what you're supposed to do in those circumstances right well i'm often i'm often accused of being a secret israeli spy so uh get get in the lineup uh we've all anybody who operates in our space and contentious issues is going to be accused of all sorts of things i recently was accused of being a a neocon. Uh, not exactly sure what that exactly means, but apparently I'm some sort of nefarious guy who pulls the, the, the strings of the U.S. government as a Canadian sitting in Montreal. Uh, so, <laughs> it only makes sense. So there I you should, should mention, by the way, I did a talk for the International Society on Intelligence Research about how to defend yourself as a researcher who's being come after. And there's a video up of that, so I can send you the link if you oh, want. Oh, that'd be good. And I, if you want, I could post it at the bottom of the sure. descriptor. So I guess uh, in, in ending our, our amazing conversation of today, are you, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, uh, are you planning on returning to academia or have you left academia and it's in your uh, rear view mirror and moving on to other things. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm at more universities this year than I've ever been at. I'm giving about 35 talks this wow. year at different universities. So uh, leaving academia, not really in the sense that I'm constantly in university halls. Tomorrow I go to University of Notre Dame. The day after that, Loyola University. Last week I was at Kenyon. The week after that, I'm in Maryland. I mean, it just, you wow. know, so I'm at plenty of universities. I'm just not affiliated with one at the moment. I might take a university position if I were at a place that had adopted the Chicago principles, right. but I'm not sure that universities are safe places at this point for researchers who do daring stuff. And uh, at the moment, I'm not looking for another position. I'm living off of my writing and speaking and doing fine with that. The position I had at Northwestern was actually a part-time full professorship. It was non-tenured. Um, and I gave up my tenured position years ago in order to do what I really love to do, which is heavy-duty research, lots of patient advocacy work and mainstream writing. And so I still continue to do all of that, and I just did it at Northwestern under a part-time position. So it's not as if that's where the bulk of my income came from, although I did like having the colleagues in the medical school and the library and all of that. And I certainly do miss having regular colleagues and the medical school behind me and the libraries. And so that was a satisfying thing. That and, frankly, Freedom of Information Act is uh, – is free in terms of getting information out of federal 
institutions if you have a university appointment. So there's an advantage there too. But luckily I'm married to a guy who has a university appointment who sometimes collaborates with me. Uh, so nice. I can always use his name for my freedom of information. Same, same field or different field? No, he's an internal medicine physician, um, and he's now the dean of Michigan State University's medical school. So he's working on the Flint water crisis, which means oh. all of his all of his training from my life has really come. I mean, hand. you can't seem to avoid controversy. It, it's it's flowing at you from. I mean, forgive the pun, flowing the water. <laughs> it's flowing at you in every direction. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, when when he came to me many months ago, before the Flint crisis became very public, he had. The, the whistleblower faculty, uh, Mona Hatisha, uh, Mona Hana Atisha is his faculty member. And he asked me, you know, would I speak to her about what it's like being a whistleblower? Because she was suffering a lot. That was the point at which the state was saying she was not true. She was not accurate, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, she doesn't need me to depress her about the reality of whistleblowing. She needs you to be the dean that I wish I had had. Right. So go be that dean. And that's what he's done. He's gone wow. and been that dean for her and support her, which is not easy because he works at a state. He runs a medical school in a state institution and she's fighting the governor. Right. Wow. So he's in a pretty pickly position there and he's he's been handling it really well. And I'm very proud of him for that. But it's true. It's our household is never seemingly free. <laughs> <laughs> well, I admire you for your uh, courage and for your intellectual you. honesty. A true delight. Stay on the line. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Alice. That was a real delight. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Take Cheer, care. Cheers.